Greetings, everyone. Welcome on this cold evening. Tonight we'll be covering 2 Timothy, Jesus Christ, our example. So we'll begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get started in the city. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the life of the Apostle Paul, a man that no one would have predicted would be a faithful servant to you, but he was a faithful servant right up to the very end. And so as we look at 2 Timothy, the, the last epistle that he wrote, we ask that you would help us to learn from this epistle and to learn especially from how the Apostle Paul faced his imminent death and how we too can remain faithful to you, faithful servants of yours, right up into the end. We ask now that you would be with us this evening and guide our thoughts and help us to understand what you would have in this epistle for us today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy, Jesus Christ, our example. We begin, of course, as always, by looking at the flight characteristics. First of all, the facts. The author of 2 Timothy is identified as the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy is one of the three pastoral letters. The other two, of course, are 1 Timothy and Titus. But this epistle that we're looking at tonight, 2 Timothy, also doubles as a prison letter because Paul wrote it from a prison in Rome. In what is thought to be his last letter before execution, Paul gave advice on church leadership and doctrinal concerns. It's also Paul's most personal letter, expressing his love and admiration for his friend, Timothy. As Paul's last epistle, it would have been written sometime in AD 66 or 67. 67 is believed to be the year when um, the Apostle Paul, as well as the Apostle Peter were executed. As far as Pauline authorship, the, first, the internal evidence, despite some modern criticism, the evidence for Paul's authorship is strong. The companions mentioned, Mark and Luke, are Paul's. Also, the content is Pauline, with its stress on sound doctrine and the word of God. The circumstances are clearly those of Paul, speaking of his imprisonment and imminent death. The external evidence, External depart for Paul's authorship is early and strong. The earliest known manuscripts bear his name. In addition, the early fathers attribute it to Paul, to Barnabas, Ignatius, Shepherd of Hermas, which is a, a writing that is very popular among early Christians, and Irenaeus. Also, the great later fathers like Tertullian, Origen, Jerome, and Augustine supported Pauline authorship and the early Meritorian canon contained it. The Meritorian canon is a, a, an early listing, I believe it's second century, a listing of, of uh, books that were used by the early church. Most of the challenges to Pauline authorship are based on the erroneous assumption that the theology and Greek style of this letter can only fit the context of the second century. And I talked about that at greater length when I went over First Timothy. The landmarks. Paul wrote a second epistle to his young protege from a Roman dungeon. In it, he urged Timothy to stand strong for the faith, endure hardship, and preach the word. The book is meant to serve as a set of final instructions on how to stand up for the faith. The itinerary and outline of the book. That chapter one is about affliction in ministry, hold fast to sound words. Uh, chapter two is about activity in ministry, be diligent in the true word. Chapter three, apostasy in ministry, continue in the holy word. 
in chapter four, allegiance in ministry, preach the only word. The gospel, Paul opened his final letter by identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. The heart of the gospel is God's promise of life, not the threat of damnation. Of course, the flip side of that promise is judgment and eternal punishment for those who reject it. Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. But the good news is found in God's promise of life, abundant life now and eternal life later. Paul's ministry was about explaining what God had done so that they could have this eternal life. He won people by the warmth of God's love and by his promise of life. Paul was a man of great character and he never took any sort of credit for his salvation. He always threw the focus back on God's grace, how God mercifully chose us to be his own and chooses us, chooses to use us in everyday life. What if God's love depended on our behavior? We might have, we might have a good day every so often when we read our Bibles and pray and are good but other days, not so much. We can never be good or consistent enough to earn God's love, can we? But that's the point of grace. God loves you regardless of your level of goodness or holiness. When you understand grace, the way the Bible teaches it, it frees you from man-made rules and regulations, as well as self-righteous protocols that often keep you from living out your salvation with any spiritual power and practical joy. You can never earn your salvation, but you can also can't understand salvation or God's grace without hearing or reading God's word. Studying and applying the truths of the Bible doesn't save you, but it is essential to Christian living. That's why throughout 1 Timothy, Paul encouraged Timothy to hold fast to the scriptures. The Lord has given us the Holy Spirit to help guide us into his truth, but we need to do our part by regularly seeking that truth where he has provided it for us in the Bible. Now the history, the Ephesian church where Timothy was pastor was the heart of Paul's ministry. Paul established the church in Ephesus, spending three years in that town. He then visited the church on his second and third missionary journeys and kept in close contact with the congregation throughout his life. Ephesus was located on the Aegean coast in what is modern day Turkey. Athens gained control of the city in 44 BC then lost it to Alexander the Great in 333 BC. In 133 BC, it was officially bequeathed to Rome. Paul founded the church there in AD 53. Timothy was from Lystra in the province of Galatia. His father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him the Old Testament scriptures. He became a Christian under the ministry of Paul possibly during the apostles' first missionary journey in 47 through 49. Paul then became Timothy's mentor and friend, and they traveled together during Paul's second and third missionary trips. Timothy was with Paul during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. That's would be his, his first imprisonment. Then became pastor of the church in Ephesus sometime afterward. According to the early church historian Eusebius, Paul was executed under the reign of the Emperor Nero sometime before AD 68. So Paul would have written the, the epistle to Timothy, the second epistle from Rome. And of course, I don't probably don't need to show you where Rome is. You're probably quite familiar with what the boot of Italy down in the which extends down in, into the Mediterranean Sea. So you see the inset in the lower right-hand corner. And then above that, the more detailed map. The red pin there is where Rome is located. It's, it's not right on the coast, but a river flows by Rome out to the, out to the Mediterranean coast. And there's an even closer shot there. And you can see how Rome is situated along the river there, along the, along the Tiber River, which flows out to the sea. 
and remember that Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So Ephesus is a little further east there in what is today Turkey, Asia Minor, and it is right on the coast, city of Ephesus. So more close up view of Ephesus. And as you can see from these two examples, it was quite common for the city to be located either on the coast or uh, on a river, which flowed out to the coast. There, there are some indications that um, Timothy wasn't in Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote the second letter to Timothy, that he may have been somewhere in Macedonia. Macedonia is, is a region in Greece. There's a more close-up view of Macedonia, which may have been where Timothy was at this time. Since this is the last epistle written by the Apostle Paul, it's a good time to review the events of his life as a Christian. So in 47 through 49, we see his first missionary journey. And then in 50 was the Jerusalem Council. In 50 through 53, Paul went on his second missionary journey. It was also in the year 50 where Timothy joins Paul and Silas in Lystra. Then in 53 through 57, Paul went on his third missionary journey. There is a time in the book of Acts where Timothy drops out of the story, but he again joins Paul uh, in AD 54 on his third missionary journey. In 58, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. In 60 through 62, he's imprisoned in Rome. That's his first imprisonment. In 62, he is released. And that's when 1 Timothy was written after he was released. In 67, Paul was imprisoned in Rome again. And that's when 2 Timothy was written. And in the year 67, that both Peter and Paul were executed. So let's compare and contrast the two imprisonments of Paul. In the first imprisonment, Paul was accused of heresy. In the second imprisonment, he was accused of a crime. In the first imprisonment, he was held in a hired house. He had a great deal of freedom in the first imprisonment. But in the second imprisonment, he was held in prison. In the first imprisonment, he expected acquittal. In the second imprisonment, he didn't expect to be released. He expected death. In the first imprisonment, he had several friends. But in the second imprisonment, he had few friends left. We're not told in the, the book of 2 Timothy what exactly was the crime that Paul was accused of. But we do know a little bit about the crimes that Christians were often accused of in the Roman Empire. And when I tell you the three things that Christians were most often accused of, you'll be shocked. Because with each of these things, you would, you would say, well, how could anybody possibly think that Christians would do these things? But it just goes to show you that then as now, it's possible to take statements out of context and twist them to make them say something that they didn't say at all. The first thing that Christians were accused of was atheism. And you might say, well, how could a Christian be accused of atheism? I mean, believing in God is, is the foundation of, Christ, of Christianity. Well, Christians only worship their God. It's not good enough to just worship your God and just worship one God. They did not acknowledge the state gods and the popular gods of paganism. 
So as far as the Roman pagans were concerned, they were atheists. Once the uh, emperor was declared to be a god, if you refused to offer incense to the, to the emperor, you were an atheist. The second thing, the second crime that Christians were often accused of is cannibalism. Pagans had heard just enough of, the eat, of eating the body and drinking the blood to get the wrong idea. Incest. Pagans had heard just enough of Christian talk about love and love feasts and being brothers and sisters to get the wrong idea. So, as I said, these are three crimes that Christians were often accused of in the Roman Empire in the first century. But there are things that just confound us. We just, it's hard to imagine how people could possibly think that. But of course, um, as you know, if hate is strong enough, they can find something to get you. Now the travel tips, the implications and applications of the book. First of all, mentoring others. Spiritual leaders should develop a core of faithful men and women who can multiply their efforts. It's not wise for a person to only concentrate on doing everything himself and not, and not think about training others others to take his place when he's gone. Suffering for Christ. When we serve our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully, we should expect difficult challenges that may create intense times of persecution. Standing firm on scripture, as people become more and more corrupt in their thinking, attitudes and actions, we must continue to stand firm on God's message in the Holy Scriptures. And then finally, what make your words count. That's what Paul did. Paul's last recorded words in the Bible are, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Every Christian should aim to finish their life as Paul did, with a strong emphasis on God's grace, power, and faithfulness. How can you make what you say and do count? by making all you say and do count. Of course, we're not perfect. We're not 100% successful, but that is our aim, that is our goal, to make the things that we say and do count for God's glory. The purposes of 2 Timothy, several purposes for writing this letter stand out. Paul desired to express his concern that Timothy preserves sound doctrine as he faced false teachers. He wished to emphasize the importance of the word of God in the ministry of Christ. Something very practical, Paul needed his cloak for the cold prison and his books and parchments for study and writing. He expressed his desire for fellowship in his lonesome condition. Alone, all alone in that cold Roman dungeon, he earnestly craved fellowship. Theme of 2 Timothy is steadfastness in Christ. To remain steadfastness, to remain steadfast no matter what life sends our way. Key verse in the, in the book, hold fast the pattern of sound words which are in Christ Jesus. Chapter one, verse 13. Style of Timothy, second Timothy. Style of writing is personal, abrupt. In other words, it, he's got a lot that he wants to get done in a, in a short time as death is imminent. So it's, it's abrupt. He turns the subjects very quickly. And it's very charged. Personal names. There are some 23 names mentioned in this short book. Objects of love in 1st and 2nd Timothy, 
Now, these are objects of, of love that we don't want to have. We don't want to love these things that are listed here. In First Timothy, there's the, the love of money. In Second Timothy 3, 2 through 4, there's the love of evil. And then 3, 2 talks about lovers of self. And lovers of pleasure in verse 4. And love of the world in chapter 4, verse 10. So these are different kinds of love that we, we want to avoid. How do we do that? The cure for worldly objects of love is love his, that's Christ, appearing. Chapter 4, verse 8. If we are focused on our Lord's return, we won't be distracted by the cares of this world. The characters in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we see several different people that Christians are likened to. And in one case, things that Christians are likened to, inanimate objects. But mostly it's uh, characters, it's people of different varieties. A son in verse 1, a soldier in verses 3 and 4, an athlete in verse 5, a farmer in verse 6, a worker in verse 15, and then vessels, uh, containers, in verses 20 and 21. So let's take a closer look at some of these. Uh, also a, a servant in verse 24, a Christian is like to. Christians are called to be like soldiers. Like a single-minded soldier, we should respond to the orders of our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus unquestioning obedience. Christians are called to be like farmers. Farmers labor strenuously and consistently in order to reap a fruitful harvest. We must also work hard in serving the Lord. Christians are called to be like athletes. Athletes follow strict training rules so as to avoid being disqualified from their race. We must display a similar measure of self-control. Christians are called to be like workers. Our work is to rightly divide or correctly handle God's work so as to avoid shame. And a few comments about what it means to rightly divide. This word, orthotomeo, which occurs only here in the New Testament. This is the only place where the word occurs. It means to cut straight, as to cut a straight road or to keep a straight course. The idea could also be that of plowing a straight furrow or of squaring and cutting a stone to fit it in its proper place. In the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used in Proverbs 3, 6 and 11, 5 to depict God's provision of a straight path for the righteous. Paul encouraged Timothy to handle the word of truth in a straight way, like a road that goes straight to its goal without being turned aside by useless debates. And finally, Christians are called to be like vessels, containers, pots. We must take care to keep ourselves pure, like a clean dish, so that it will be useful for the master. There is an emphasis on the word of God in 2 Timothy. We see that in each of the chapters of 2 Timothy. Each chapter has an emphasis on the word of God. Chapter 1, verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There's a, a verse in 2 Timothy which talks about scrolls and parchments. Paul wants Timothy to bring to him his scrolls and parchments. What are they? Uh, this is the, the King James version of the verse. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. And he has me, uh, when you come, bring the overcoat which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. That's the ESV. And then the Lex of English Bible. When you come, bring the cloak that I left behind in Troas with Carpus, and the scrolls, especially the parchments. So the Lex of English Bible makes, makes it clear what, what kind of books these are that he's talking about, they're scrolls. So he's talking about the scrolls and the parchments. The word translated books or scrolls, Biblion, is common in the New Testament, but not the word for parchments, Nebrana, which occurs only here. This is the only place in the New Testament where we see this word. It is a word derived from Latin that means an animal skin used for writing. It's from that word membrana that we get our word membrane. The two words in this passage have been interpreted in various ways. So scholars are not all in agreement about what, what is meant by scrolls and parchments. Some think it's a reference to Paul's legal papers that he wanted Timothy to bring his legal papers. Some say that they are written accounts of Jesus' words and works. Some say that they are other New Testament materials, including copies of Paul's epistles. Some say that the scrolls were copies of Old Testament books and the parchments were copies of various New Testament books. Others say that the, the books were copies of both Old Testament and New Testament books. The parchments, they say, were blank writing material or notebooks containing rough drafts. Another explanation is that the two words signify the same thing. That it can be translated like this. The books, that is the parchment notebooks. This interpretation suggests that Paul was anxious to recover some rough drafts he had left behind when he was arrested. But regardless of which one of these understandings is the correct one, Um, I see a, a, another significance in, in this verse. And it has to do with an advance in writing technology that began to take place in the first century. Up into the first century AD, writing was done on scrolls. And to this day, if you go to the synagogue, they have a Torah scroll. And they read from the Torah scroll each Sabbath. And what happens is that they begin at the beginning of the scroll. Each year after, after Sukkot, they start over again at the beginning of the Torah. And then each week, they advance to the next passage and they read that. And then the next week, they advance to the next passage and read that. So they, they follow the passages in the Torah sequentially. But think about how you use your Bible in church. The preacher might say, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And you turn to Romans chapter 8. 
and read that. And next you might say, uh, turn in your Bibles not to Isaiah 53. So you turn back to Isaiah 53. And then he might say, now turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter six. And so it's very easy for you to flip back and forth as the, as the speaker directs in the church service. It's very, very difficult to do that with the scroll. It's not at all convenient to, to advance to one passage and then go back to the next passage earlier. It's very difficult with the scroll. It takes a lot of, a lot of winding and it's very tedious. So that there was a, an advance in writing technology that took place beginning in the first century. Beginning in the first century, we began to see the codex, the beginning of, of the codex. Codex is simply a book with leaves, like, like you're familiar with, a book with leaves or pages. The writing is done on the pages, and then the pages are bound together in a book, in a volume. And this began to take place in the first century, and then it accelerated in the second, third, and fourth centuries. But I think that the way that Christians used their Bibles had a lot to do, a, a very powerful influence on this transition from scrolls to, to the codex, or codices is the plural, um, from, from the scroll to the book. I think uh, that Christianity had a very, played a very major role in that, in that process. In the same way, uh, centuries later, when the printing press was invented, what was the first book that was printed on Gutenberg's printing press? It was the Bible. So I think Christianity has had a, a great influence on this advance in writing technology. Now let's look at the text of the second epistle to Timothy. When death nears, priorities change. In light of mortality, what used to seem significant may dim in comparison to one's ultimate fate. That is why we listen to a person's last words. When all is said and done, everyone wants to know what gave that person hope in the face of death. Second Timothy is Paul's last words. From a cold, lonely prison, the aged apostle wrote his final instructions to his protege, Timothy. Paul knew that this letter might well be his final contact with Timothy. His execution was most likely imminent. He implored Timothy to come quickly to his side. But in case he did not make it, Paul imparted his last words of encouragement to his son in the faith. Paul's primary purpose for writing this letter was to offer final instructions to Timothy regarding the Christian life. Second Timothy has an intensely personal nature and tone. One senses Paul's strong love and concern for Timothy. Paul encourages his close friend to use his spiritual gifts. He writes to strengthen Timothy's loyalty to Christ in the face of suffering, of the suffering and persecution that would come. The apostle challenges Timothy to handle the word of God accurately, faithfully instructing others in the truths of the faith. Warnings and instructions are given concerning how believers should relate to the world in times of apostasy. In the closing chapter, Paul offers Timothy his final word of advice. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready when it's, when it's popular and you're well-received and when you're not so well-received and when it's not so popular. This was Paul's own mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he is passing it on to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul's second purpose for writing this letter was to urge Timothy to join him in Rome. Paul knew that he was soon to die. He longed to see and have fellowship with his child in the faith one last time. Paul was well aware that hardships and conflict are a part of Christian ministry. One of the essential characteristics of a faithful servant of Christ 
is endurance in the midst of difficulties. To encourage Timothy in this virtue, the apostle reminds him that Jesus Christ is of the seed of David and was raised from the dead. Mention of the seed of David links Christ with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which states that a son of David will rule on his throne forever. Furthermore, Christ has been resurrected. He is alive. The promise of ruling and reigning with him is set before Timothy as a motive for faithful endurance in ministry. A special crown will be given to those who faithfully serve the Lord and wait for his return. Chapter 3 develops the theme of apostasy in the latter days. Paul warns Timothy that difficulties are coming for believers. And he instructs him about how Christians are to respond and behave. Jesus had predicted that such times would come. We see several examples of that in the Gospel of John. And Paul himself had referred previously to these times. Although he would not live to see these dreadful days, Paul still cared enough to urge Timothy to be bold in the work of the Lord, even in the midst of troubling times. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. That's his first imprisonment. But many scholars believe that Paul was acquitted as he had expected. From the sporadic evidence in the pastoral epistles, once again, that's first and second Timothy and Titus, we can trace Paul's travels after his imprisonment. He probably visited Crete, Ephesus, Macedonia, and perhaps Colossae in Spain. Timothy traveled with Paul to Ephesus and was left there to confront the false teachers that were infiltrating the church in that city. Many believe that Paul was put in prison when Nero began his campaign of persecution shortly after Rome burned in AD 64. Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fire and executed many of them with extreme cruelty. Soon afterward, the apostle Peter died for his faith by being crucified upside down, according to the church father origin. As Paul penned his second letter to Timothy, he was aware of his coming death. A number of believers had deserted him and only Luke was with him at the writing of this letter. At the end of the letter, one can sense Paul's concern. He implores Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly. Paul did not want to leave this life without seeing Timothy and Mark to give them some final words of wisdom. Paul's concern for Timothy arose out of their long relationship with each other. Ever since the beginning of the second missionary journey, Timothy had been close to Paul, assisting him in his ministry, acting as his liaison, and learning from his godly example. Timothy's devout mother, Eunice, and grandmother, Lois, had provided him with grounding in the Hebrew scriptures on which Paul could build. Although Timothy was slightly timid, because of his young age, Paul developed his son in the faith by placing more and more responsibility on his shoulders. Timothy had functioned as Paul's representative to Thessalonica and Corinth, but leaving Timothy at Ephesus was a major step for Paul. As a concerned mentor, he wrote a letter to Timothy, repeatedly charging him to remain faithful to the essentials of the Christian faith. Paul had served as Timothy's spiritual mentor throughout his life. Now, as he neared his death, Paul wanted to see him one last time. If that could not be, he wanted to at least, at least to give Timothy some final words of encouragement. Some of the issues that are raised in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.10, if Jesus abolished death, why do we still die? Paul affirms in this text that Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
but death is not abolished since death spread to all men. We read in Romans, and it is appointed for men want to die once. We read in Hebrews. First of all, Christ did not abolish physical death immediately, but by his death and resurrection, it will be abolished eventually. Christ is the first one to experience resurrection in an immortal body. The rest of the human race, those chosen by God, that is, will experience this later at his second coming. Second, Christ abolished death officially when he personally defeated it by his resurrection. However, physical death will not be completely destroyed actually until he returns again, and death is swallowed up in victory. For Paul tells us the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Another issue that comes up is arguing about theological matters. 2 Timothy 2, 14 and 23. Is it wrong for Christians to argue about theological matters? Paul seemed to forbid theological arguments when he instructed Timothy not to strive about words to no profit and to avoid foolish or ignorant disputes. On the other hand, Paul himself argued with the Jews in their synagogues, Acts 17, and disputed with the philosophers in Mars Hill. Indeed, Jude exhorts us to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered for all, which was once for all delivered to the saints. A distinction must be made between the two senses of what it means to argue or to contend. Arguing is not necessarily wrong, but being argumentative is. We should contend for the faith, but not be contentious in doing so. Making an earnest effort to defend the faith is good, but engaging in fruitless quarrels is not. Likewise, Paul did not oppose dispute about what words really mean in a given context. He simply opposed mere semantic wrangling. It sort of reminds me of, of the scriptures that we see in, in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 26, verses four and five, uh, one, one verse says, argue, uh, answer not a fool according to his folly. And the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. So it has a lot to do with whether a person who is asking questions or um, bringing up issues is actually wanting to learn, or is he just looking for an argument? Some discernment is required in that process. Is repentance of man or is it of God? Second Timothy 2 uh, verses 24 and 25. Is repentance a gift of God or an act of man? Paul writes here, God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Yet in other places, repentance is considered a person's own act. For example, in Mark 1.15, Jesus calls on people to repent and believe the gospel. Paul tells us that God commands all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. But repentance cannot be both an act of God and an act of the individual believer, can it? Repentance is an actual gift of God, but like other gifts, we must receive it to enjoy it. God offers the gift of repentance to eternal life to all who are willing. Those who are not willing do not get repentance. The only ones who are willing, of course, are the ones chosen from the foundation of the world. In this way, God is impartial in his offer, but man is still responsible to accept or reject the gift of repentance necessary for salvation. This fits, this fits with God's call on all men to repent. The contribution of 2 Timothy, Paul's deep conviction that he was about to be put to death for holding the Christian faith is to be kept in mind in all discussions in this letter. Paul does not envisage writing anything further to Timothy, nor to, perhaps to anyone else. He hopes that Timothy will be able to reach him before the end. His request for his cloak and his scrolls shows that he anticipated an interval before his execution. So he did expect there would be some brief time between the time that he wrote the epistle and the time that he would be executed. Nevertheless, 
the letter is written in the shadow of the scaffold. And it's to be seen as what Paul considered to be important in his last communication to a trusted subordinate. Not the least of the letter's values is that it shows us the way that a Christian martyr should face death. Those who live comfortably in secure communities should not belittle this contribution. For in many lands with anti-Christian governments, people still die for their faith. Indeed, there have been more Christian martyrs during the last century and a half than in the previous 18 centuries combined. Certainly martyrdom for the faith is much more common than most Western Christians realize. And accordingly, it is well that we appreciate Paul's attitude to dying for Christ. His calm, calm contemplation of what lay ahead and the quiet faith that undergirded all he was doing and is going about his necessary business. He was still had it in his mind to be active as long as he could. He wanted Timothy to bring his scrolls and his parchments. There is no fanaticism here, nor any attempt at grandstanding. The apostle writes from a lowly posture and sets an example of the way Christians should die for their faith. He writes also of how they should live for it, even if this means suffering along the way. Paul also brings out something of the importance of their heritage. He speaks of the good deposit that was entrusted to you. That same word deposit is used in verse 12, with possibly much the same meaning. In line with this, Paul has much to say about what God has done, such as his reference to the gospel, followed by the power of God, salvation, the call to a holy life, grace given in Christ before the beginning of time, and now revealed in our Savior, the destruction of death and the gift of life and immortality. An enormous weight to be carried within three verses. He covers all of that in just three verses. It is of abiding importance that believers are not given a list of instructions as to how as to what constitutes the path of the service of God and then left to themselves as they try to work it all out. The foundation of all Christian life is what God has already done. And Paul makes it clear that all that Christians are asked to do is to live out the consequences of God's saving act. This they can do without timidity. For God has given them power, love, and self-discipline. In line with this, the apostle exhorts Timothy to pass the teaching on to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Just as Paul realized the importance of passing on his knowledge and his abilities to other people. He wanted to emphasize that they too should pass on the teaching to reliable people. There is a given about the Christian faith. It is something inherited from the beginning of God's action for our salvation. And it is to be passed on as long as this world lasts. Paul is not arguing that believers should be insensitive to currents of thought and action in the world about them, nor is he saying that the Christian is a kind of antiquarian interested in antiquity for his own sake. He is saying that there is that about the essence of the Christian faith that is not open to negotiation. God has said and done certain things, and Christians must stand by those things, whatever the cost. We should bear in mind his notable statement about scripture. That's referring to that famous statement about all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God has spoken and we neglect what he has said to our peril. Paul is clear that the cost of discipleship may be great. He speaks of suffering, both his own and that of other believers. He likens Christian service to that of a soldier, an athlete, 
and a hardworking farmer. He leaves Timothy in no doubt that while our salvation is a free gift from God, it is also demanding. In living out its implications, the believer is going to run into difficulties and will find that God, that the God who sent his son to die on the cross is always served at cost. Paul uses the illustration of a variety of articles in a large house, some costly, some cheap, some for noble purposes, some for ignoble. The reliever is to aim at being fit for noble purposes. Cleansing is costly. The Christian will meet with opposition, sometimes from people who profess to be Christian themselves. Part of the value of this letter to us is its warning against those who wander from the truth. Especially is this true because we, like Paul, are in the last days, when there will be people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. In accord with this, Paul insists on the importance of sound teaching, which some people will reject, gathering teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Paul is not contending for adherence to some dead tradition. Rather, he insists that God has laid a solid foundation that stands firm. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate so much the instructions that the Apostle Paul remained faithful throughout his life sought to impart to his student, his pupil, Timothy. And we are inheritors of that long line of peaceful teaching and instruction that began with the apostles in the first century and went on to those that they instructed and then on to those that they instructed and so on down to us. We are thankful for all of those faithful lives. And we ask that you would help us to impart the faith, the teaching and the instruction that you have given us to the next generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.